Hey, y'all. Today, we're going deep on the new HBO TV series, Watchmen. So look, here it is. I'm going to give you one massive spoiler warning. Right now, if you haven't watched episodes one through six and don't want to be spoiled, pause this podcast right now. It's okay. I won't get mad. Just do it. Go watch it and come back and listen. And if you don't think you'll ever watch it, stick around. I ask you to do this because, and look, I don't say this lightly, Watchmen is one of the most astute, honest commentaries on race in America that I've seen in a long time. And I'm so excited about that because there's no other show better suited to discuss Watchmen than this one. From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod, a podcast about Black culture from Blackness's biggest fans. I'm Eric Eddings. There's a lot of good superhero movies and TV out there, and I watch all that shit. I watch it because they can be a fun and kind of fantastical way to explore how we think about the problems and fixes for society. But Watchmen takes that idea and puts it on fucking steroids. It's smart, challenging, funny, and delightfully dark. So before we can get into just why and how this show blew my mind, I need to give you a bit of backstory. The TV show is based on the Watchmen comic. It's one of the most popular graphic novels of all time. It's set in this pretty crazy alternate reality. President Nixon never resigned. World War III was avoided because a giant squid fell on New York City. And regular people have been putting on masks to fight crime since the 1930s. But the TV show picks up today, in 2019, focusing on the origin story of one lone hero. And her name is Angela Abar. Angela is played by the legendary Regina King. And yes, that means that this show is all about a black woman. That alone is fucking rare. She's supposedly a baker by day, but at night, she's a mass detective, Sister Knight. Black as hell, I know. Her costume is this really cool, kind of badass nun outfit. But Regina King's nun isn't saving souls. She's laying hands. Calvary involved shooting last night, and I don't get a little bighorn until two hours ago? We were still working the scene. It was late. Mm. You gonna give me the speech now? What speech? About how I'm overreacting by calling Article 4. and I should calm down and take a breath before we're at war again. There's a guy in my trunk. I knew you were going to tell us to round up the likelies. I just got to jump on things. In this world, most cops wear masks, which is pretty fucking weird. But they put on the mask to protect their identities while they track down and investigate members of this villainous white supremacist group. Are you a member of or do you associate with members of the white supremacist organization known as the 7th Cavalry? No. Do you believe that trans-dimensional attacks are hoaxes staged by the U.S. government? I don't know, maybe. The show has all the wild, fun comic book tropes that I love. But when it comes to its exploration of the racism that Black people have always experienced, the show feels very different from anything I've seen. There's this one scene from the latest episode that shows a lynching. 
but they show it through the eyes of the Black person experiencing it. That is not something you see every day in television, even dramatic television, and particularly not from the angle we shot it in. That's Cord Jefferson. He wrote last night's explosive episode six, along with the show's creator, Damon Lindelof. We shoot it in the perspective of somebody being lynched through that, that point of view. As the, as the dark hood goes over their eyes and as they're, they're raised into the, into the sky and, and, and they're choking, you hear them choking. It's a very, very difficult scene to watch, and we never wanted it to feel callous or or um, or flippant, or we were doing it for the sake of doing it and just to be uh, shocking. We just wanted to make sure that that it felt like this is real. This is a thing that that happened in history, and we wanted to show it to you and not pull any punches when we showed it to you. So when I watched episode six, I had a mini freak out in my apartment. I couldn't believe what I was seeing because how often are the experiences of Black people centered in this way on a show that's not explicitly a quote-unquote Black show? And race was hardly ever mentioned in the original comics. So uh, how did we get here? I remember the first conversation I ever had with Damon about working on this show over dinner one night. And he said to me that he wanted to make it a show about race. Mm. And it made sense to me off the bat because if you read the original text of Watchmen, one of the main conversations is is, uh, basically the Cold War, the threat of like nuclear war between the Soviet Union and the the United States. That was something that was present in everybody's minds and everybody was concerned about it in, in the real world and in the book. And just as... Nuclear tensions were on everybody's mind in, in 1985. I think that there's no way to look at American society right now and not understand that, that racial tensions are on everybody's mind. If you wanted to update this story in a way that felt true and felt relevant and real to the America that we're existing in presently, even though this isn't an alternate universe, it, it would deal with racial tensions. It's an alternate universe. <laughs> that feels yes. very important to say. But the show opens with this really intense recreation of the 1921 Tulsa massacre, where white mobs attacked black residents and businesses in an area of Tulsa that becomes so prosperous, it became known as Black Wall Street. Yeah. So this Tulsa massacre scene is introducing you to the alternate world of Watchmen, which is interesting because the Tulsa massacre actually happened in our real world. You see... The literal chaos, black people, families, kids running for their lives, being attacked in the street, fires everywhere, explosions, gunshots. It's a traumatic scene. I'm curious, was there any worry about, like, just how vivid to go? There was certainly, like, a concern that to have, like, a scene that is, like, so graphic and depicts, like, such intense violence in a way that feels really, really real and really, really traumatic when you're watching it, particularly as a person of color, that that might turn off everybody. Particularly when, like, you know, people are tuning in thinking they're going to look at a comic book show. And, like, most people's understanding of what comic book movies and TV shows look like nowadays are, like, 
kind of cartoony violence and kind of campy and, and silly. But that scene, while it is uncomfortable to watch and, and painful to watch, putting that at the uh, at the opening of the pilot, I think that it was a risk, but it was a risk that paid off because something yeah. that is, was like wildly thrilling for me to see was like this, somebody tweeted like a spike in the Google searches for Tulsa Massacre mm. because so many people thought that was fake. There were so many people who thought that was made up. They were like, wow. they were they were dropping bombs from airplanes? Like, no way. And yet, that is exactly what happened. People were dropping bombs from airplanes onto black families below. Yeah. When I'm talking with white friends about the show, the conversations are all about how it kind of feels like they're, almost like their eyelids are being forced open kind of for the first time. Um, mm-hmm. Seeing these things that maybe they hadn't quite before. Yeah. But I often talk to black folks about the show, and it's like, a, often it's like, finally. Yeah. <laughs> and like, for what it's worth, it was strangely affirming. I'm curious, how did the writing team kind of land here as the catalyst for this story and kind of everything that comes after? For a number of reasons, but without getting too, without sort of giving too much away, one of the main themes that really, really attracted me to this show and and made me very excited about writing for this show. One of the main themes is generational trauma Mm. and particularly generational trauma as it pertains to being black in America and what we do with that trauma and how we cope with that trauma. And the Tulsa massacre was the perfect place to begin that story and to begin that journey because it was such a traumatic event. It was such a traumatic event, but it was also one that was recreated in many ways over the course of hundreds of years throughout the United States of America. It was a good sort of starting point for this story we were trying to tell. And so, you know, I kind of want to set a little bit of the, uh, uh, kind of a little bit of the rules of this, because if you're coming into this and you haven't seen, or you're not that familiar with Watchmen, in this kind of alternate America you have mass vigilantes who have been around since like the 30s. And kind of the big bad of this this season is this group called the 7th Calvary. In the show, you know, they're kind of referred to as like, I think it's the Klan with different masks. Yeah. They're clearly this offshoot of the Klan of the KKK. And it seems like this group popped up after black descendants of the Tulsa massacre started actually receiving reparations or in the show, Redfordations. Redfordations, because Robert Redford is the president. Right. So I'm going to play you a clip. The 7th Cavalry has just killed a black police officer, and the police are desperate to track them down. They're in the briefing room watching this video of the 7th Cavalry claiming responsibility for the murder, and their mass leader delivers this very supervillain-esque spiel. Soon the accumulated black filth will be hosed away. And the streets of Tulsa will turn into extended gutters, overflowing with liberal tears. Soon all the whores and race traitors will shout, save us. And we will whisper, no. We are the 7th Cavalry. We are no one. We are everyone. We are invisible. And we will never compromise. Do not stand between us and our mission, or there will be more dead cops. There are so many deserving of retribution, and there is so little time. And that time is near. The 7th Cavalry is kind of interesting because it's this, it's this superhero big bad, but they're based on this 
real group, this real group that has, has, has all this history and has been in existence for, for really, really, for decades, generations even. The 7th Cavalry is very much sort of unique to Tulsa, and we wanted them to be unique to Tulsa because we wanted Tulsa to be ground zero for Redfordations and for the story of reparations. And what would happen, what we believe would happen if reparations were to actually come to pass, I think that we would see a, a, a backlash from many Americans. And so the 7th Cavalry isn't necessarily the Klan, but as you said, there are generations of white supremacist organizations that have been operational throughout the history of the United States. So it just made sense to us to make that the the big bad, in your words. One of the things I really love about the show is kind of how intricate and detailed it is when it's thinking through, like, white supremacy. And, like, it trickles down to kind of the, the smaller interactions, too. Like, you get a chance to kind of witness white supremacy at work in people's everyday lives, which also feels kind of, like, new uh, and, and and fresh, if you can describe white supremacy in people's everyday lives as fresh. But um, <laughs> I want to play one more scene for you. This is kind of our introduction in the show to the main protagonist, Angela Abar, who is played amazingly by Regina King. She's incredible. In this scene, she's standing in front of her son's classroom, and she's doing, like, a cooking presentation. Yeah. And she's teaching a class about mooncakes, which she used to have while growing up in Vietnam. I was born just outside of Saigon, and when I grew up, I was a police officer there until I moved here to Tulsa. Did you stay a police officer? Uh, For a while, then I retired. I figured making cakes and cookies was better than getting shot. So I quit the police force and opened up a bakery. Did Redfordations pay for it? Excuse me? Your bakery. Did you pay for it with Redfordations? Tommy. (laughs) That dissolves into like a fight. Yeah. We wanted to introduce the the idea that that people are receiving reparations for the injustice and for the massacre. And we wanted to introduce the idea that there was animosity because of those reparations. I'm watching that, and in my mind, I'm like, of course, of course. You know, so much of how we think about reparations is about the possibility of this happening, you know? Um, It's about what it would take for people to actually receive reparations. But, you know, we don't often talk about what would happen if we actually got them, if Mm -hmm. it actually passed. Yeah. So, of course, if reparations actually passed, racism would adapt. White supremacy would adapt. (laughs) It always does. Yeah, you know, it's surprising every single day. Something that I kept repeating to myself and, and I said once in the room, and I, and I think we ended up writing it on the board to remember, was that when you are used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Mm. And so that is, that is sort of the motto of what we were thinking about when we were thinking about how the white citizens of Oklahoma would react. So we wanted to introduce this, this kid who very clearly was was parroting things that his that his parents told him about the unfairness of red predations and how uh, it was giving black people a leg up that they didn't deserve. You know, it really like dives into just how messy it is. 
the thing that I also like about the show is that it doesn't just kind of show things in this kind of crystal clear, like binary context, good and bad. One of the best examples of that, I feel like, in the show is Don Johnson's character, Judd Crawford. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of the, the chief of police. He's like always in his uniform. You know, he's got his like cowboy hat on. He's also one of Angela's, it's clear he's one of Angela's like close, close friends. They survived this pretty traumatic event together. Mm -hmm. You're building sympathy, all the sympathy for him as a character, but then you kind of find out something about him that you have to reckon with. He has this clan robe hanging in his closet. For me, that tracked, like, so much of blackness is having to kind of work with people, you know, who are not all the way for your success. So it's really interesting the way the show explores this through Judd. In this scene, this man, who at this point, we aren't sure who he is, but he's played by Louis Gossett Jr. He's out for justice, and he's trapped Judd. So Judd tries to appeal to the old man. Whatever you think I did, you don't understand. I'm trying to fucking help you people. You don't know what's really happening here. You have a clan robe in your closet. My granddad's. I have a right to keep it. It's my legacy. You should so proud of your legacy. Why'd you hide it? You don't know me, old man. Literally, the racism just slips out. You know, Absolutely. I'm trying to Absolutely. trying to help you people. Exactly, you people. That's that's when that's when you really know. <laughs> it's like the racism calling card. Like once <laughs> once you hear that, it's like, oh, I know where I'm at. <laughs> you people. Um, I feel like that type of person is someone who like black people actually interact with a lot. There's this kind of tinge of paternalism and this inability to reckon with their history, reckon with their role in a history of hardcore racism. I think that we've seen very recently a lot of people like Judd in the United States. And that, that is in the number of people who have come out in support of Confederate monuments all throughout, all throughout the country. Judd getting his hackles up about uh, criticism of, of his grandfather being in the Klan and, and holding on to his Klan robe as if it's his heritage really sort of mirrors a lot of what you hear when people argue that they want a Confederate memorial to Robert E. Lee to come down. You have uh, hundreds of people lining up saying, well, that's my heritage. This is my heritage. Uh, you have no right to, to criticize it. They do not understand that the foundations of, of their heritage, quote-unquote, is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe they do understand it and they don't want to admit it to themselves the way the judge didn't want to admit it to himself. In that moment, he's like, this is my heritage. This is my history. And it felt like, it feels like it crystallizes this thing, you know, that I kind of think is that, like, you know, black people and, and white people sometimes fundamentally look at the same history very differently. You know, we just see those events, the implications of them are are different to us. Absolutely. It was just one of those scenes, like, I felt like, wow, like that, that shit, I, I actually rewatched that scene just a bunch of times. There's a lot of, like, deep, exploration of, you know, of race, of kind of the interactions between black and white people and how we've sometimes worked against each other and worked together. And I'm curious about 
how easy or difficult it might be to do this type of exploration within the world of kind of like a a hero, like comic book story. Yeah, I mean, the the stuff that we're talking about, I feel like the show is sort of a fusillade of ideas, and many of those ideas are sort of third rail subjects. Uh, race in America, clearly being the most prominent one. Yeah, yeah, I went for it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of big swings in the show which is one of the reasons that it felt so exciting to to write for it. And I think one of the reasons why it feels so exciting to watch it for many people. I, I sort of want to make it clear that we never went into it trying to be flippant with these ideas, despite the fact that the show is a comic book show. Watchmen, the original text, is a comic book, but a comic book that most people are are, are not used to. Yeah. One that delves into very, very dark and, and, and serious ideas. So we wanted to continue doing that, but... I also was coming to it from a place of understanding that despite the fact that a lot of people think comic books are sort of kiddie stuff, I think that comic books, when they're really great, serve as, as allegories. I sort of only came to comic books when I was older, and by the time that I got around to them, it seemed very clear to me that that something like the X-Men wasn't about mutants who could shoot laser beams out of their eyes and stuff. It was, in my mind, a, an allegory about oppressed people and, yeah. and how— people who feel like outsiders in society adapt and try to try to live their lives freely away from people who would who would uh, seek to oppress them and harm them the comic books that i've enjoyed reading and the stories that that i've enjoyed watching over the years haven't been kitty stuff i hope that that people don't think that just because it's a comic book show that we're that we're belittling the stories we're trying to tell about about race and stuff like that Coming up after the break, we get into the episode that truly blew my mind. I want to get to that big-ass bomb y'all fucking dropped uh, in (laughs) episode six. Like, don't think we're not going there. Okay. (laughs) Most Black people want to trace their family's history. But looking for the people who came before you is often a process of trying to plug a million holes. But in this alternate Watchmen reality, they have figured out how to fill in those blanks. So there's this place in the show, the Greenwood Center for Cultural Heritage. It's part museum that educates people on the horrors of the Tulsa Massacre and part futuristic research library with people exploring virtual family trees. It's the type of place that made this world seem kind of like a utopia for just a hot second. I want to play a scene of Angela going to the center. Hello, I'm United States Treasury Secretary Henry Louis Gates Jr. On behalf of the entire United States government, President Redford offers his sincerest condolences for the trauma you or your family may have suffered. So at this point in the show, Angela has discovered that Louis Gossett Jr.'s character is Will Reeves. When she looks at this black man, it's clear she feels a connection to him. So she takes this mug that he drank from to the Greenwood Center for Cultural Heritage to get his DNA tested. She walks up to this little computer kiosk to get started. May I have your consent to test a sample of your DNA? Yes. Please take a cotton swab from the drawer, gently rub it on the inside of your cheek, then place it in the slot. Your DNA will be processed exclusively here at the Greenwood Center for Cultural Heritage. Only survivors of the 1921 Tulsa Massacre 
and their direct descendants are eligible to apply at this facility. Please tell us the best number to call you. 539-176-2442. Thank you. Our country appreciates the opportunity to right the wrongs of a dark past so that we may all share a bright future. God bless America. So this shit, I'm not gonna lie, this is wild to me. This is fucking wild. So, <laughs> like, you know, right now, if I want to know more about my own history, it's on me. I got to figure that shit out. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this alternate version of America, the government has deemed it its responsibility to do that work. Again, yeah. wow, what the fuck? Yeah, dream. I mean, yeah, it is a dream. You kind of experience this cultural center in like a couple of different episodes and it's one of the things I really liked is how you interact with all this. It's just so considered. Like, it's really this kind of immersive experience that feels like it's been thought through very, very well. Like, when Angela goes to the center to look at our family tree, the machine that analyzed her DNA earlier dispenses this encoded acorn. Then Angela takes that acorn to a room in the center called the greenhouse. She plants the acorn, and this virtual tree appears in front of her. Welcome, Angela Abar, to your family tree. A new branch on your father's side is now available. If you would like to grow this branch, please tap your father, Marcus Abar. I watched this scene with so much wonder. The idea that I could easily discover my ancestors sounds amazing. These are your paternal grandparents. June Abar is in our archive. Will is not yet identified. Please key his icon for more information. With 99.947 certainty, Will is your grandfather. Will's genetic profile directly matches two individuals in our ancestral database. Based on an archival photograph, the center can render them now. Angela, would you like to meet your great-grandparents? Yeah, okay. And the fact that he even asked if she was ready to receive this type of information was wild. I was just like, wow, yes, that is actually how you should approach it. Mm -hmm. We approached it very much like uh, what would our fantasy world look look like because uh, that's very much what it felt like, a, a fantasy tracking down black ancestry is incredibly difficult because of the slave trade and because there's no real paperwork that that identifies people. Um, and so to to see a world in which the United States government had taken it upon itself to do this work, to benefit black Americans, unfortunately, it does feel like a dream. It doesn't feel... It doesn't feel like it could ever happen in, in the real world because it, it, it doesn't feel like um, in the real world politicians would ever sacrifice anything in order to to help out black people who were traumatized by racism in the past. I mean, for something for something that's supposed to be somewhat dystopian, like I'm, I'm like uh, that that part sounded kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. I'll take that. Uh, <laughs> but it, but the thing about it is like you know this idea of kind of exploring your legacy and your history. You guys take it a step further. It's not just learning the information. Angela, our protagonist, uh, Sister Knight, she actually gets to experience her history, which, again, is fucking wild. Like, so, you know, she gets these pills from her grandfather called Nostalgia. And, like, in a panic, she kind of downs a bunch of them. Do you know how Nostalgia works? 
or how they make it. You know, they, they insert these little chips into your brain and they harvest your memories. You know, and then they put them in a little pill and you pop one and you get to experience that shit all over again. It was supposed to be for older folks, you know, a dementia treatment, but that limited the market because, you know, who wants to be in the present? We can live in the past. So I'm watching this, and, like, in my mind, though, I'm like, it, this can only be therapeutic for white people. <laughs> like, you know, it's not, like, it's not that we, you know, black folks haven't experienced joy throughout their lives and they might not want to remember that, but usually there's a lot of trauma. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know that I would take any of my family members' nostalgia pills. Like, I wouldn't even probably take my mom's. <laughs> It is designed to be taken only by you're you're only supposed to take your pills. So taking taking another person's pills <laughs> is not recommended in the Fair. world of nostalgia. <laughs> I'm just curious if you would. Like would you actually want to experience that history? You know, I think that maybe I would. Hmm. Living another person's experience is an important way to to understand that person. And I think that if there's anybody who has, uh, I, I think who has, you know, who has been a mystery to me my entire life and and who I feel uh, has traumatized me was is probably my dad. I love him very much, but he is, he is certainly like, certainly the source of a lot of, of, of my uh, issues as a grown-up. And so if I were given an opportunity to take a bunch of pills and live his life and experience his emotions as as he felt them. It might give me a clearer picture and a, and a better understanding of who he is as a human being and why he made the decisions that he made. I think that it, it would be traumatic in the moment, but it also might be very therapeutic to help me understand mm. who he was as a person and, and, and the things that he went through. In episode six, that is very much what Angela gets to do. She's been looking at this guy, her grandfather, who's who's been confusing her for the previous five episodes and has been a, a thorn in her side consistently. Um, and it gives her an opportunity to to literally step into his shoes and understand why he's been doing what he's doing and why he has has sought her out after all of these years and and what he what he wants her to understand. Basically what that pill does is it allows Angela to experience this origin story in just this, like, extremely, like, literal way, you know? Yeah. She takes these pills, and she experiences life from her grandfather's point of view. Going from when he was a young police officer in New York. Stop! Stop in the name of the law! I thought they only said that in the pictures. I saw what you did. You're under arrest. She experiences all the bad stuff, this inability to do the job. You let him go? Let who go? The man I brought in for burning down in Delhi. Sorry. I have no idea what you're talking about. What? You were standing right there. The other officers took the guy to book him. I think you're having memory problems, Reeves. The racism from his fellow police officers. You keep your black nose out of white folks' business, nigger. Even a hanging that he survived. So Will's just survived this hanging. He's still wearing the hood and noose around his neck, trying to find his way home. Then he stumbles across a couple being mugged in an alley. Again, he's still wearing a hood and noose around his neck because he's just been lynched. But he fights the muggers and saves the couple. 
This is his first taste of fighting crime as a vigilante. My God, thank you. So I want to play the scene where Angela experiences her grandfather's decision to actually become a masked vigilante. In this scene, Will is talking to his wife. He's telling her about a movie he watched over and over again as a kid growing up in Tulsa, about the heroic black cowboy Bass Reeves. He's shooting at somebody riding after him. It's a man all in black. A man in the hood. And he's got a lasso. And he throws it at the sheriff. Pulls the sheriff. And Will is telling his wife the movie's plot. A hooded Bass Reeves chases and arrests a corrupt white sheriff. And when the townsfolk see the black cowboy underneath the hood, they cheer him on for saving the day. What color? Are those townsfolk? White. Tell me, what happened to the Dreamland Theater where you watched that picture over and over while your mama played the piano? What the Klan and the fine white citizens of Tulsa do? They burned it down. You ain't gonna get justice with a badge, Will Reeves. You're gonna get it with that hood. And if you wanna stay a hero, townsfolk gonna need to think one of their own's under it. At this point, we see that Will Reeves has white makeup around his eyes to make it look like a white person is underneath the hood. You sure you wanna do this? I'm sure. So, we're going to get to all the different ways this is kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> this plays into into a, like a massive moment. But yeah. even before that, like, it was kind of a, a, I mean, an amazing acknowledgement of something it feels like maybe black people have kind of always known, which is that, like, the criminal justice system just kind of doesn't work for us. But it was really cool to see that kind of, like, mixed in with, this superhero origin story? Yeah, uh, we knew that we wanted Hooded Justice to be a, a central part of, of this season of television. And when we started thinking about it, a thing that sort of leapt to my mind was who would seek out extrajudicial justice? Like, who, who in America would be the most likely to find justice outside of a courtroom? To me... That was so clearly a person of color. Uh, it was so clearly a black person in the 1930s. The more that I started thinking about this and the more we started talking about Huda Justice being a black man, the more that I started thinking of, like, you know, the dumbest superhero in the world as it pertains to our world presently is probably Batman, right? Like, mm. the idea that a billionaire white guy can't find justice and needs to seek, <laughs> needs to seek justice as a vigilante is crazy, right? Like, yeah. he's, a, he's a billionaire. He could buy the court if he wants to. He could buy judges. He could buy the presidency. So who might be the first superhero ever? And it made, it made total sense that it would be a person of color. And so what was his origin story? His origin story is that he tried to do the right thing. His hero was a police officer. His hero was a black police officer, Bass Reeves. And he loved him since he was a boy. And he saw this horrible tragedy and injustice happen to his family. And he grew up thinking that, like, maybe one day if he puts on a badge, he might be able to sort of tacitly get back at the people who committed that horrible injustice against his family decades before. And so he does it. And he realizes pretty quickly that, like, oh, 
putting on a badge doesn't matter. The badge doesn't matter because what matters to these people is my skin color. And so I need to find a way to find justice that operates outside of the rule of law because I tried doing it within the rule of law and everybody told me that I can't and they almost killed me for it. That was an incredible superhero origin story that I had never seen. Same. And, it, and, and, <laughs> and, and I've, it felt, I've yeah, seen a lot it, of them. <laughs> and, it felt, and it felt so relevant and important and timely. Um, and it, it was sort of one of the most thrilling ideas, I think, that, that, that we, we put forth in the, in the season. Coming up after the break, we get into how this origin story completely shakes up the Watchmen universe and does something that I've never seen before in a show like this. Nothing is the same. In the Watchmen comic from the 80s, Hooded Justice was the first masked hero. He was a superhero who, in this world, inspired every single one who came after him. He was large and built like a wrestler. He wore a dark hood and a noose around his neck. But his true identity was never revealed. No origin story, nothing. It's one of the big mysteries of the comic. People have speculated for decades who could have been underneath that hood. But all suggestions have assumed it was a white man, because why wouldn't it be? But episode six of Watchmen on HBO has completely upended that. The scene that we played earlier didn't just connect Angela with her grandfather, Will. It didn't just highlight that Will is important in this world. That scene made this Black man the most important person in the entire Watchmen universe. Here's what's wild, though. So this comic book is a Bible for most white comic book nerds, you know? Scores of white fan bros often bring up the book as the pinnacle of comics and social commentary. But the book barely mentions race and only has a couple minor black characters. But the genius of this TV show is that now every last one of those fanboys has to look at this world and think about race and white supremacy. They have to see the people and issue that they have been able to ignore. The blinders are off forever. And as a black comic book nerd, I am fucking delighted. So, you know, you guys decided to take this comic, uh, this graphic novel that people are obsessed over and have been obsessed over for a long ass time. Yeah. And you guys just rewrote the implications of the character that inspired it. Yeah. <laughs> like, holy shit, man. Like, are, like, are you, like, have you already cut off your Twitter mentions? Like, what, you know, like, just how, are, like, are you, how do you think about the implications of this in terms of how it might be received? It's risky. It's a big swing, <laughs> and it's risky, and we, and we know that there are, there are going to be people who are furious about our, our reading of the material and are going to be furious about what they think we've done to their to to a character that they've loved for for a long time but in my mind it was a no-brainer. Like, the more that I thought about it, I mean even the noose around Hooded Justice's neck, when I looked at this character walking around with a noose around his neck, immediately my mind went to lynching yeah. and and the the long history of of lynching black people in in, in this country. 
there was maybe a lot of white people who, who looked at that character and thought, oh, he's an executioner, and that's an executioner's mm-hmm. mask, and that's an executioner's noose. I immediately thought, this is somebody who um, suffered some, for, some form of racial violence in the form of lynching, and he carries that noose around his neck as sort of a reminder of that. It just felt so right that despite the fact that it may be irritating to to a lot of people who loved the original text it was too good to not put in the show and it was too <laughs> it was too i think it was too exciting of an idea to not to not follow through i mean it's uh, it's amazing the fact that he hooded justice inspired the first superhero team and then you know all kind of all the teams that kind of came after this honestly it made me think a lot about you know the fact that even throughout history there've kind of always been things that black people have worked really hard to kind of foster and create this ingenuity that often gets credited to white people. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've talked about barbecue, you know, and have people be like, <laughs> you know, and people really think, you know, white people made barbecue. Yeah, man. And it's just, I'm just like, yo, fam, like, what the hell? <laughs> house music. I just had this conversation with one of my friends about house music. Black people invented house music, man, in Chicago. Nobody knows that. Thank Everybody you. thinks it's like white Europeans. <laughs> <laughs> and black people invented mass vigilantism. So thank you. Thank you for giving me that. <laughs> no, man. That's a, that's the... That's the most exciting. I was talking to I was talking to a, a man the other day, who's who said episode six forced him to reevaluate the original text in a way that felt very exciting to him. He was like, "I've always loved Watchmen, but there was nobody in the book who really looked like me, and so now to be able to look at Watchmen and imagine a world in which the first masked adventurer, costumed adventurer, was a black man and a black queer man at yeah, that. a black queer man who was responding to racial violence. He was like, it made me super excited to read it all over again. And he was like, and it just added a depth to the material that I didn't feel the first time that I read it. And so, you know, affording that opportunity to people of color to reimagine the, this text and to feel closer to it was a real honor too. And that that was incredibly exciting for me. Honestly, it was exciting to watch. Like I, I heard about, I heard the episode, it was explosive as it was described to me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm watching it. I was literally like kind of freaking out. I, I was actually texting with our producer, Sarah, and I was like, oh, man. I text her. I was like, I think I got to the controversial part. And then I text her again. I'm like, oh, man. No, I actually think now I got to the controversial part. And I sent that text like four times. Because <laughs> I just kind of ha- yeah. kept having these like holy shit moments. Yeah. I imagine getting like plot points for this episode. And I'm just like, I, I imagine just responding to them and being like, oh, what? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> wait, we doing what now? You know, like, I, I'm just curious, like, once you got to the outline of what this episode would be, like, how you how you thought about going into actually writing it? For me, sitting down to write it felt like a very, very huge task and, and at times one that felt impossible. But it's easier for me to write an episode of television when I can sort of say very clearly and concisely in a couple sentences what the episode is about. And mm. for me, the, this episode was just about generational trauma and the things, the baggage that we hand down to our progeny and, and, and that, that we force other people to carry um, and, 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 and deal with. This episode, more than any of the season, gets at how our wounds haunt us. Mm. and how our wounds follow us despite the fact that we try to abandon them 
and how our wounds shape our lives and shape our behavior, and then how we pass on those wounds and that trauma to people who come after us. There's a lot of big ideas in this episode, and we're in episode six, but the thing that grounds it is that idea and that theme. It was it was kind of really cool to hear in that context because usually, I feel like a lot of times when people talk about generational trauma, it, it seems like a thing out of a comic book movie. You know, like yeah. it's, it's a thing that you struggle to actually like imagine that something like that can be passed on. Yeah. But uh, but again, one of the cool things about the show is it feels like such a natural place to explore something like that. Absolutely. So after so after episode six, there's three episodes left in the season. Mm-hmm. For you personally, like, what are you hoping people come away from this series, like, feeling or thinking? You know, the thing that I that I hope people really take away from it is this idea of legacy and this idea of what the past does to us in the present and how we can go about living our lives in a way that that we don't recreate the problems of the past and, and we don't we don't relive the negative experiences of, of the past. You know, a meditation on generational trauma and a meditation on on um, on trauma that's handed down throughout the course of history to me is a very important theme and it's one that I think is is um, is very, very present in this show and one that I think is very present in this show because this show is is very much about the black experience in America. And I think that generational trauma is unfortunately a, a, a big theme in black Americans' lives. Thank you so much, dude. Seriously, like I really, really love this show. Thank you. Uh, and also just like talking about it in this context was it was great because I watch a lot of superhero shows. I don't actually get the opportunity to do this. So thank you for putting so much of the shit I like in it. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to nerd out with you about it. So I, I, I really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much. The Nod is produced by me, Eric Eddings, with Brittany Luce, Kate Parkinson Morgan, and Wallace Mack. We are edited by Sarah Saracen. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasuka. The show was mixed by Cedric Wilson. Our theme music is by Khalid B. For additional music in the show, check the show notes. And and I have to point out just one thing. Yes. And um, just bear with me. So you know, in in superhero stories, there there's conspiracies all the time. And um, you know, the last time we had you on this show, the back half of it was uh, a peanut butter history about. Bass Reeves. Yes. And, you know, I'm not saying, I, you know, sure, maybe you guys have been working on the show for a long time. Maybe maybe, maybe that's true. Uh, but it just felt a little close, you know? That is, that is fair. That is fair. I will say, the last time you had me on, uh, we had already begun uh, work on, uh, begun production, in fact, on, on The Watchmen. And Bass Reeves was was part of the was part of the show as, as far back as September of 2017. So I sure. believe, I believe okay, it fine. predates. I, but but you know <laughs> you know what conspiracy theories are fun to have. So keep it. <laughs> <laughs>